Happy Palm Sunday. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 14. Have been for a couple weeks or so now. And uh, last week we were looking at verses 5 through 12, and today we're going to pick it up with verse 13 and look down through verse 18. Uh, Let's just go back and begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 14 to get our context, kind of remind ourselves of some of the things we've been talking about the last couple weeks. And uh, read down through verse 18. He says, Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. For who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, But do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Okay, well, uh, as I said last week, we looked at verses 5 through 12. So glance down through those verses and, uh, and let's see, can we remember anything we talked about last week? Anything that sticks out in your mind from those verses? 
that we talked about last week. Okay, great. I, I think that's an important point that Paul brings out here. Is is uh, he talks about the person who who feels he has the liberty in this case to eat meat, and he says when he eats he gives thanks because he has this liberty. He believes it's given to him from God, uh, and so he gives thanks. On the other hand, we have the person who doesn't feel he has the liberty to eat meat. He feels there's something wrong with eating meat. We discussed the reasons for that the week before. But he feels there's something wrong with eating meat. And he gives thanks to God in his not eating meat. He's, he's grateful to God that he can live this kind of a life, a life of abstention from eating meat. And so the measure of, of whether or not a person's conscience is right, in one measure of whether or not a person's conscience is right in what they're doing is can they... Uh, in a bona fide, in a sincere, serious way, can they give thanks to God? Okay, it's really a measure of our faith, and and then when we get down to the end of the chapter, we're going to Paul talks about when we when we act contrary to our faith, when we do something that we don't really have the faith to do, the implications of that. So one measure of whether or not you have faith, wasn't one measure whether or not you have a clear conscience, is as Blake said, whether or not we are. Uh, able to give thanks to God. What else? What's that whole thing about where he's where he's uh, where he's talking there about uh, about the issue of Christ's lordship? What's the point he's trying to make there? Okay, he's the Lord of all, which implies what? Remember, I drew a circle up here on the board. And I said, Christ is, we drew a circle which resembled all people, both the living and the dead, which includes everybody. I don't think there's anybody who's not either alive or dead. And so it included everybody, okay? And so what was Paul's point? If Christ is the Lord of both the living and the dead, then what? Well, under the living, it would include people who eat meat. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. If he's the Lord over both the living and the dead, that is over everybody, then he is certainly the Lord over the weak, uh, those who are weak in conscience or weak in faith, and those who are strong. And uh, and if that's the case, then that means that my uh, my brother or sister in Christ who may be stronger in faith than I, or my brother or sister in Christ who may be weaker in faith than I, they stand before the Lord uh, individually before the Lord, just as I stand individually before the Lord. So I really I'm relieved of the responsibility. I no longer have to take responsibility to judge them <laughs> because. It's not my job. It's God's job, and they answer to God. They don't answer to me. And uh, so that's his whole point about lordship. Anything else?
Okay, well, let's pick it up then in verse 13 and let's read these verses again that we're going to look at today. He says, Therefore, do not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let that which is good for you, which is for you a good thing, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So here in verse 13, right at the beginning of verse 13, Paul uh, kind of restates his case when he says, let's not judge one another anymore. Uh, now, initially, when he was using this phrase about judging, uh, he was speaking of the weak judging the strong. That's how he was using it in the earlier verses. And then when he was talking about the strong, he talked about them holding the weak in contempt. So he was using two different words. Uh, he was using judging in reference to the weak's attitude towards the strong, and he was using regarding with contempt in reference to the strong's attitudes towards the weak. Okay, but here in verse 13, he kind of just he uses judging now in kind of an all-inclusive sense. So it's kind of let's all of us <laughs> stop judging one another. Okay, let's the weak. Those of you who are among the what he would classify here as the weak, he says. He says, let's stop judging those who, who are strong, who, are, who, who have, feel they have the liberty or the freedom in these non-essential areas. Let's stop judging them. And to the strong, he's saying, you need, you need to not be judging uh, your, your uh, weaker brother, the one who doesn't have the liberty or feel the liberty to do things that you feel that you have the liberty to do. You need to stop judging one another. Okay, But he... He uses kind of an interesting play on the word. We don't pick it up in our English translations, but in the Greek, it's really pretty conspicuous. He's using a, uh, uh, a, uh, a play on words here because really uh, what he says here in, in verse uh, 14, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this. He's using the same basic Greek word here. Uh, so he's saying, no, you, you don't, don't judge in the sense of condemning or, or disapproving of your brother, but use your faculty of discernment to figure this out. That we are not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. So he's saying, don't judge your brother, but judge this. Don't be critical of your brother, but be critical of this. Be critical of putting a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of a brother. That's how we ought to be thinking, Paul says. Uh, and uh, we'll explore this more as we go on today. What, is, what does he mean by an obstacle? What does he mean by a stumbling block uh, in, in regard to our brother? So we'll explore that more. But Paul just states his case up front, first of all, that we are not to do that. And then he gives us several what we might call theological reasons or the foundational reasons why we should not be putting a stumbling block in the way of our brother. Now, uh, and most commentators are, are in agreement on this, and I would agree that Paul has now shifted his focus 
from more gen from a more general exhortation to both the weak and the strong to a specific exhortation to the ones he classifies as the strong. Okay, so right now he's addressing the strong, those who. And again, when we talk about the strong, we're not talking in a moral sense. We're not talking that they're better Christians than the other Christians, but rather that they. They are, they are strong in their understanding of the gospel and the implications of the gospel, so they're strong in their sense of the freedom that they have. Uh, Mike last week pointed out, uh, uh, I think, a, an int- a good point uh, that in, in uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, where he's dealing with a similar problem, the question of eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he's talking about whether or not you can eat that, he refers to those who are weak in conscience. And I think that's a good way to think in terms of what he's talking about here also in chapter 14. When he's referring to the weak, he's not somebody who's talking to somebody who's weak in character, weak morally, uh, they're not a good Christian. He's not saying that, but rather that their conscience is weak in regard to these things. And, and, uh, and, and, and if, if they uh, were to eat meat, their conscience is weak in that area and their conscience would be uh, injured or, or offended or hurt in some way. Okay, so that's the idea that he's talking about. And, but his his concentration now is on those who are strong, those who have a strong conscience, those who feel they have the liberty to eat meat, those who feel they have the liberty to regard every day alike. They're not obligated to set certain days aside and observe certain days. Okay, and and he begins to also raise the issue of drinking here in these verses that we're looking at today and, and uh, a little bit more down, the, down uh, in the verses that follow. And so in these areas of eating and days and drinking, etc., he's saying those of you who are strong are not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of your weaker brothers. Okay? And he gives us several reasons in this passage. Uh, he says, uh, uh, and this kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but, he, but one reason is because of love. Okay? He says, if, you don't, if you're putting a stumbling block, you're not loving. Okay? So one reason is because of your love for, the, for your brother. Another reason is because of the love of Christ. He said, this is, he's, this is your brother for whom Christ has died. And so that's another reason why we wouldn't want to put a stumbling block in somebody's way. And then the third reason, he says, is because of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Okay? So it doesn't, you, don't, you don't have to eat meat to be a viable, functioning member of the kingdom of God. You don't have to drink wine to be a functioning member of the kingdom of God. It's not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and it's about peace and it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. So these are the reasons that Paul gives and we'll explore these some more as we go on. But in verse, uh, in verse uh, 13, he kind of lays out his, uh, his main argument that he wants to make, which is that we are not to put a stumbling block in the way of another. And then verse 14 is kind of a parenthesis. It's uh, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a foundational thing we need to know about how Paul thinks. He wants us to understand as he proceeds forward in this argument about putting an obstacle in front of somebody. He wants us to understand his thinking about these areas of non-essentials. 
Okay? And it's kind of a parenthetical thought. So you'll notice when you get down to 15 that we have that little preposition at the beginning of the verse that says, for if because of your food your brother is hurt. Well, the four isn't referring to verse 14. It's referring back to verse 13 because 14 is parenthetical. So let's read for 13 to 15. Leave out the parentheses first. Then we'll come back and talk about the parentheses. He says... He says, determine this in verse 13 there in the middle. Determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You see, you see how the logical flow is there. And so 14 kind of interrupts that. Uh, and we'll, we miss that connection if we don't see that. So I just wanted to point that out to you. That 14 is kind of parenthetical. But what Paul says in 14, even though it's parenthetical, is very important. He says, I know and I am convinced of this. Now, Paul has already, in the verses we looked at last week, stressed the importance of having strong convictions in these areas. In other words, he doesn't want us to just kind of be wishy-washy, maybe this, maybe that. He wants us to really understand in, in these areas in which we live our lives in these areas of conduct, the things we do and the things we refrain from doing. He doesn't want us just kind of just doing them without thinking about them. He wants us to have strong convictions. And this is where he's coming from. He says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. So the first thing he knows is that there's nothing unclean in itself. He's convinced of that. He's equally convinced that for the person who thinks something is unclean, to them it is unclean. So it's not unclean generally, but it is unclean individually to that person who considers it unclean. So this is what Paul knows. Well, let's think for a minute about what he says when he says there's, that he is convinced in the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean. Now, commentators aren't sure exactly what he means by when he, when he uses the phrase <clears throat> in the Lord Jesus. He, he could mean simply that in the course of his walk with Christ, he's just come to this understanding. Okay? That as he, as he lives his life in Christ, this just makes sense to him. Okay? Or he could mean that Christ has given him some kind of personal revelation. Uh, as he, uh, For example, in Ephesians, he talks about a special revelation that God gave him regarding the church. And he discusses that in, in the book of Ephesians. Okay? So Paul, being an apostle, would get specific revelation. So maybe, it's, maybe what he means here is that Christ has given him a particular revelation on this. Okay? Uh, another possibility is put forward is that he's referring to something that Jesus himself said when he walked on earth, okay? Something Jesus taught in his ministry, and he's referring back to that, okay? We're not sure how exactly Paul uses the phrase in the Lord Jesus here. Although this last point is certainly true, we do know that Jesus said some things on this issue about the cleanliness of things in the course of his teaching. If you'll turn back to Mark chapter 7, uh, and Jesus is teaching publicly in 
Mark chapter 7. And uh, in verse 14, he says, after he, uh, after he called the crowd to him, so he's addressing, first of all, the crowd, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, for there is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. So his disciples are going, what did you say? I mean, out there you said something about nothing outside of us defiles us. They're they're confused about this. Why are they confused about this? Well, because there had been their whole lives, they had been raised with this understanding of some things were ritually or ceremonial unclean. There were certain foods they couldn't eat, etc., etc. This is very baffling to them that Jesus would say this. And so in verse 18 it says, And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And then notice the parentheses. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Okay. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me, I was thinking about this yesterday, intrigued me about this passage, is that many scholars and students, particularly of the Gospel of Mark, believe, uh, we call it the Gospel of Mark because we believe that Mark wrote very probably John Mark that we become familiar with in the book of Acts. But it, is, but it is believed by many, and I, I tend to hold this position myself, it's believed by many that Mark is basically simply writing the recollections of Peter. This is really Peter's gospel. okay? And that Peter is recalling these things to Mark, and Mark is writing these things down. So, so the book of Mark is oftentimes viewed, or often viewed, as being really an expression of Peter's outlook, Peter's viewpoint, kind of Peter's gospel, so to speak. Okay, it is, of course, the earliest of the Gospels to be written. Uh, Now, what's interesting or what's intriguing to me about that is is Peter's experience in the book of Acts on this issue of the cleanliness of food. Do you remember what remember about that? What what am I referring to? It was the dream where the sheep came out of heaven and all kinds of unclean animals came out of the sheep and told Peter to arise. Right, precisely. It's in Acts chapter 10. And, and God is getting ready through Peter to begin to take the gospel to the Gentiles. OK, but of course, Peter's got all kinds of hang ups with the Gentiles. You can't eat with them and they're, you know, they're dogs and all that sort of thing. He's got all these Jewish hang ups with the Gentiles. And uh, and God's getting ready to send him to Cornelius, to a Gentile and begin to sh- uh, promote the gospel among the Gentiles. And so Peter's there at his, at, at his place of residence in, in Joppa, I believe it is. And he's up on his roof. He's waiting out there in the noonday sun. I don't know why you go up on your roof in the noonday in Joppa. But he's up there on his roof and he's waiting for dinner to be prepared. And as he's waiting for dinner to be prepared, he's getting hungrier and hungrier. And in the heat of the day, he falls into a trance. And he has a vision. And the vision is this sheep held by four corners lowered down in front of him, full of all kinds of animals and crawling creatures and birds and all kinds of things. 
and they are not ceremonially clean creatures, some of them. And he hears a voice, and the voice says, kill and eat. And Peter says, nothing doing. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice says, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. And then the sheet goes back up into heaven. And then a little bit later, it comes back down. And it, happens, it happens three times. Okay? And, uh, which is a way of emphasizing. I want you to get this point. And then, and then after the vision was over, while Peter was still waiting to be called to lunch, he's sitting there and he's, uh, the passage in Acts tells us he's thinking about this. And I'm thinking, what is Peter thinking? And I'm thinking, Peter's probably thinking, when did God call these things on, uh, call these things clean? Wouldn't that be the, you know, because he didn't in the vision. In the vision, he didn't say these things are clean. He said what God has called clean, you are not to call unclean. And I'm thinking, what's Peter thinking about? Well, I got a hunch he's going back and thinking about those things back there that are recorded in Mark. Jesus teaching there. That thing that was so puzzling and troubling to the disciples that they cornered Jesus after He taught it publicly and asked for a clarification. And in the parentheses, notice, Mark says, thus He declared all things, all foods, clean. So, in Peter's mind then, he understands. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Jesus declared those things clean. And just about the time he's figuring that out, he hears a knock. I better do, not do that. There's a class next door. He hears a knock on the door, okay? And it's the representatives from Cornelius, and they're coming and asking him to come and eat with a Gentile and present the gospel to him. Okay. They will knock back with much more vigor than I knock. So, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so at any rate, we understand then that that all foods are clean. Now, what is that based on? Well, it's based on, of course, the teaching of Jesus. And so, Paul, this may be what Paul has in mind when he says, uh, when he says he has this conviction in the Lord Jesus. So, it's based on that. But it's also based on the principle that in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 31, after all the creation is done, what does God say about it? He says it's very good. It's very good. And Paul reflects on that then also uh, in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy. And he's talking about these people, uh, all these false teachers and stuff that Timothy's having to deal with there in Ephesus. And he's, he's instructing him and he says, and he says, we've got all these guys around and they have seared consciences and they're forbidding marriage and they're forbidding this and they're forbidding that, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, and, and he says in, uh, let me get it right so I'll turn over to it uh, so I get it exactly right. But it's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. He says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. It's that idea again of Thanksgiving that we talked about last week. So Paul says everything God created is good and it's for our enjoyment. It's for our use and we are to give thanks for it and enjoy it. Okay, so so Paul is fully convinced in his mind that there is no unclean thing. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't impure, unholy actions. 
There are things we do that are unholy. There are things we do that are unclean. That's clearly Paul teaches that. But he's here talking about things like food. He's talking about the non-essentials. He's talking about food and days and things like that. And he says it's all been created for our enjoyment. God has blessed us with it and we are to enjoy it, he says. And, uh, and, and not listen to those who would tell us that we can't because there's something unclean about these things. This is Paul's deep-seated conviction. But he also has the deep-seated conviction that if somebody thinks something is unclean, to them, it is unclean. So, he says, we've got to really give some thought to this issue about putting an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And, and that's what he then begins to address. Now, Paul doesn't use the term here in this passage, but it, of course in the passage in in 1 Corinthians 8, he does. He uses the term conscience. Okay, uh, and and this idea of conscience is is really an important thing in in Scripture. Okay, because the conscience is something that God has implanted within us that gives us an and uh, an inner, uh, I'm going to use a technical term here, an incorrigible sense of right and wrong. Okay. Uh, God has implanted this inner sense in us so that we have this rudder. We have this thing that guides us and helps us just know, if I can use this term, instinctively know what is right and what is wrong. Okay. You can see it in the eyes of a little one-year-old child, can't you? When they know they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. You know, they give you that look like, I'm going to do this and I know you're not going to like it, but I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it. <laughs> right? Okay. We have this thing that's planted in us. Okay. And I use the term incorrigible. Usually when we use the word incorrigible, we're talking about somebody we can't get them to change, okay? But when it's used in sense to, when it's used in a technical sense, when we're talking about, uh, it's talking about, when we're talking about our inner awareness of things, okay? We have certain things we just know internally. And we don't need any outside verification or information to tell us that. For example, everybody in this room has a perception that I'm standing up here in the front talking. You didn't need anybody to tell you that. Right? You just, you've perceived me up here talking. Now, it might be an illusion. You might be hallucinating. Okay? Some of you probably think you are. But you might be hallucinating. But that does not change the fact that you have an incorrigible perception. Which means you know you're perceiving it. You don't know if it's an illusion or not. 
You don't know if it's a hallucination, but you know you have that inner awareness that this is happening. And there's nothing I can do to disprove that. There's nothing I can do to convince you that you do not have the perception of me standing up here in the front talking. That's incorrigible. Now, you have that in a lot of ways. You have that kind of a sense in a lot of things. One of them is just the sense that you are. From the moment you were born, you had an incorrigible awareness of your existence as an individual autonomous being. You just knew that. So what are the, it's, it's one of the ways that we... Uh, well, that's getting off track. I won't get into that. But at any rate, you have, you have these kind of inner, this kind of inner knowledge of certain things that nobody had to tell you. It's just there. It's planted in you by God. Yeah? Yeah, and we're yeah we'll get to that in just a minute. Yes, exactly. Um, but what we need to understand first of all that it that it is a gift from God. It is planted in us at birth, at our conception. God has put this idea or this sense within us of certain things that are incorrigible, that we just know them, and we don't need some. We don't need to read a book or consult a manual or have somebody tell us. And in many cases, we don't even need to see it visually or hear it. We just know certain things internally. They're what we call brute facts. Okay? Well, one of the things that we have that God has planted within us is our conscience. So we would know right and wrong. Okay? Now, he did that because he doesn't want... I, uh, I'm kind of reading into the mind of God here, but, but in my understanding, he, he did that so that every time I had to make a decision, I didn't have to run to a manual to find out whether it was right or wrong. Yeah. I don't always have to go over here and go, okay, now let's see. I was going to go to Walmart and buy a carton of eggs. Is that right? You know, well, let me check the manual. I don't need to do that because I, I have an internal compass that God has given me. If I'm, you know, if I'm, uh, if I'm tempted to look at something that I shouldn't look at, maybe a neighbor across the street, a woman or something, and I'm tempted to look at them and think thoughts, I, I don't need to go to the Bible to find out that's wrong. Now, the Bible will tell me it's wrong if I look. But I have an inner sense. I know internally it's wrong. Because God has put that awareness in me that it was wrong to do. Yeah. I thought about that question about 15 seconds before you asked it. <laughs> um, I would say yes, but I'd have to think about it. Okay? It's a good question. I would say yes, it was. Okay. Uh, uh, and the reason I would say yes is because I believe when Adam and Eve were standing there confronted with the temptation, even aside from the fact that God had well, because God had said no, they knew internally that it would be wrong to do that. Okay, so so uh, so there was an internal conscience that told them it would be wrong to do something other than what God told them to do. So I would say yes. 
so God has given us this conscience as a, as a guide, as a rudder, so it's very important to him. Now, we do know, however, that the conscience is not infallible. Okay? It's incorrigible. It's an incorrigible element of our being, but it's not infallible. Just as your perception of me up here could be an hallucination. Okay? Your, your perceptions are not infallible because you are a fallen human being. You've been affected by the fall. So our conscience is not infallible. And as we read Scripture, we discover at least two ways in which the conscience can fail us. And one is in the area we've been talking about. It can be weak. And when the conscience is weak, if telling us certain things are wrong, then in reality are not wrong. If telling us certain things are unclean, that in reality are not unclean. That's a weak conscience. But if my conscience tells me something is unclean, which is not unclean, and I refrain from doing it because I believe it's unclean, what harm has been done? I haven't sinned, right? If I've been... If my conscience tells me that I shouldn't eat meat and I don't eat meat, I've not committed some sin. (laughs) The only thing is I may have lost the enjoyment of the taste of a good steak, but I've not sinned. There's nothing morally wrong with that. Okay? So you're lying to yourself? Uh, No, you're not lying to yourself because, because this is just your understanding, your perception. And Paul's and, and Paul is not, uh, he, he, he never denigrates the person for the strength of that conviction. In fact, he says three times in this chapter, make sure you've got a strong conviction in whatever you do. And when he gets to the end, he applies that specifically to the weak. He says, make sure you have a strong conviction and don't ever act contrary to that conviction because to do so is sin. Okay? We heard Pastor Ron preach some time back about that even though you think something in your mind is wrong, your conscience tells you it's wrong, and so you sacrifice that, even though it's not wrong, that God still honors it. Yes, and that's what Paul said earlier. They give thanks to God. The person who does not eat gives thanks to God. So it's an act of worship in making that sacrifice. Precisely. Great. You know, you know one of the things I've noticed um, over the years in being in churches, the problem that comes around is that the person whose conscience tells them that that's wrong, they insist that everybody else follow their conscience. And that creates all kinds of... And we're going to get into that. Yeah, we're going to get into that. That's a good point. Okay. Uh, so, let's see. Where was I? So, oh, yeah, that's right. So, one of the things, one of the fallibilities of conscience is that it can be weak. Okay. But there's another area in which the conscience can fail us and that is that it can be seared. And just before Paul talks uh, there in uh, 1 Timothy 4 about all things being clean, he talks about people a couple of verses earlier who have a seared conscience. Okay. And a seared conscience, a, a weak conscience is a conscience which tells us that some things are wrong that are not wrong. 
A seared conscience is a conscience that is insensitive to wrong. It's lost its ability to detect wrong. We might even say, in, in, in a sense, it's opposite of a weak conscience in that it tells us things are right that are in fact wrong. So weak conscience is a conscience that tells us that things are wrong that are in fact right or okay or clean. And a seared conscience is a conscience that convinces us that things that are wrong are actually right. Okay, Those are two different things. And Paul, in his writing, deals entirely differently with someone who has a seared conscience from someone who has a weak conscience. The peril that Paul is wrestling with here in this passage is that a person who has a weak conscience can, by by the inconsiderate actions of a strong person, be led into the trap of a seared conscience. And that's why Paul is as strong as he is on this issue that he's talking about not putting a stumbling block in a brother's way. Okay? So, uh, so the, the peril comes then when someone with either a weak or a strong conscience, either way, but particularly we're thinking about the weak right now, when someone with a weak conscience ignores or disregards what their conscience is saying. They develop a habit of disregarding their conscience. And when someone develops a habit of disregarding their conscience, they are cultivating a seared conscience. When that happens, they no longer have this internal rudder. Their rudder no longer works. And they're just a ship adrift in a moral sea. Okay? And that's why God takes this thing about conscience so seriously. So even though the conscience is fallible, in fact, because the conscience is fallible, we need to be diligent not to offend it, not to ignore it, not to disregard it. It's there as a guide. God has put it there to give it to us as a guide so that I don't always have to stop and think before I act. I have this internal sense and it just, you know, when, I, when, when I'm presented with an opportunity, either I get green flags and I move ahead or I start seeing flashing red lights and it just tells me to stop. I don't even have to necessarily stop and quote a verse. That sometimes helps. It's sometimes useful. But I don't always have to do that. Sometimes I just get that, uh-uh, not, not this way. Don't do this. And if I move forward at that time, I've burned a little hole on my conscience. I've burned a little hard spot. And that, right in that area, I'm developing a hardness. And if I develop a habit of doing that, my conscience is going to become harder and harder. Okay? What happens, what happens uh, to the sensitive conscience? I mean, where is God in all this? Is He still there for us? Uh, well, yes, I think he is. I, I, think, I think there is a point at which a person just goes to a point where God can no longer reach them. Uh, but, but there's many a Christian who would give testimony 
to what God has done in their lives to break their hardened conscience. Uh, God does do that. Uh, it's a very painful process. Some of us can attest to that. The painful process of having that seared conscience made soft and pliable again. Uh, so, no, I don't think we're necessarily beyond God's uh, grace and God's salvation at that point. But it's certainly a very uh, unpleasant process to get where we need to be at that point. Yeah. Well, so Paul says, then he lays out some things for us. He says, given these principles, he says, if because of food your brother is hurt, he says, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food the brother for whom Christ died. So, so he, he gives us these two first reasons that I talked about. One is, is our own love. If we love a brother or sister in Christ, we are not going to want our freedom to eat food or do something else in a non-essential area. We're not going to want to use that in some way that will hurt our brother or destroy our brother. Okay. Uh, and I believe he's using those two words synonymously, hurt and destroy. Okay? Some commentators try and make a difference there, but I think Paul's using them. If you study the context carefully, I think he's using it, uh, using them basically synonymously. What does he mean by that? Well, this kind of brings up the issue that Ron talked about just a minute ago. And part of the difficulty comes, uh, comes up in uh, verse 20. Uh, down in verse 20, he says, uh, at the end of verse 20, he says, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. And so, so the uh, suggestion is that if my exercising of my liberty in a given area offends a brother or sister in Christ, then I should never do it. Okay? Uh, but the question is, what do we mean by offense? Now, when we talk about offending somebody today, what do we mean? Opening our mouths. <laughs> That's about what it comes down to. And I'm getting to that point here in just a minute, okay? But, uh, but when we, oh, so-and-so offended me, or, or I offended somebody, what do we mean by that? Okay, we might have made him angry. We made him uncomfortable. Pardon? Made him feel bad. Something about it they didn't like. Okay, well, whatever the case, the, the point is when we use the word offend here, we're usually talking about some feeling that we're generating to somebody. Okay. And in our culture today in America in the 21st century, this is a big thing. This is a really big thing. We call it political correctness, right? You can't say anything nowadays. You can't do anything. You know, if you put a 
If you put a nativity scene in your front yard, you are offending somebody. You're making somebody uncomfortable. Okay? If you use certain words or certain terms, okay, you're offending. So you have to be very, very careful about what terms and what words you use. And so we're all walking around on eggshells afraid we're going to offend somebody. Right? Is that what Paul means? Is Paul here enjoining us to bring political correctness into the church? I don't think so. I don't think that Paul means here that we are never to do anything that makes another Christian feel uncomfortable. Uh, There are several reasons why I think this. One, you notice that in the passage, as we've come through Romans 14 so far, he keeps talking about those who eat, those who eat, those who eat. Why didn't he just say, stop eating? Meat. We're talking about meat here, not in general. Why didn't he just say, stop eating, that solves the problem? He didn't say that. So Paul assumes that there are going to be people in the church who eat meat. Right? Not only that, it's not a secret. Because the weak know it. Right? Because he keeps warning the weak not to judge the strong. Now, why would they judge the strong unless they knew the strong were eating meat? Right? So, Paul's dealing with a situation where some people are eating meat and some people whose conscience would be offended if they ate meat, know that there are strong people eating meat in their church. Alright? So, I don't believe that what Paul is saying is you don't ever do anything that makes somebody feel uncomfortable. Because if that were true, you couldn't come to church. Because you're going to do something that makes somebody feel uncomfortable. But not only that, just touching on this issue that Ron raised a minute ago, if we can't do anything that some Christian thinks is wrong, what does that mean? Well, um, if Jim were in here today, he's not, so he gets off the hook. But I'd nail him about his long hair. Some Christians think long hair is a sin. I'd also nail him on playing the drums. Because some Christians believe it's wrong to listen to music with a heavy drum beat. And you women, you must make sure your dresses always come down to the angles. Because to, to have a dress any higher than the ankles is sin. And sorry for all you ladies that are here with short sleeves. That's a sin. So you need to wear long sleeves. And uh, all those DVDs you have at home with the movies on them, out they go can't go to movies. You can't watch movies because some Christians really do believe that that's a sin. How many of you worked in the garden yesterday? Or in the yard? That's also a sin. To somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
But did you go to the lake? That's also a sin. <laughs> you see my point? If, if our policy is, based on Romans 14, that we can't do anything that some Christian believes is wrong and would make them feel uncomfortable if they saw us doing it, we'd be worse than a cult. We'd look like a bunch of maniacs and we wouldn't be able to do anything, right? I don't believe at all that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. It's... It's political, political correctness in the church gone crazy is what it is. Gone wild. Okay. It's because I'm constantly walking on tiptoes afraid that I'm going to do or say something or play some music or wear the wrong kind of clothes or put on some makeup or, or, or have a bare head in church if you're a woman uh, in, instead of a head covering. Uh, when you're worshiping, and on and on and on and on and on and on and on, on we go. That's why there's so many denominations. Oh, well, that's one reason why there's many denominations, yeah. So, so I don't believe that Paul is saying that we, our, our measure of what we do is we figure out what somebody else is offended by in the modern sense of the term, and we don't do it because they're not going to like it. Okay? What that does is that completely eviscerates Christian liberty. And all Paul's talk about liberty and freedom and, and all things being good to enjoy, all of that is just absolutely trash. Because when it comes right down to it, what Paul's saying is you can't do any of that stuff. You can't eat meat. You've got to observe the days. Etc. 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 Because somebody somewhere thinks it's sin. Some Christian somewhere thinks it's sin. Well, if he doesn't mean that, then what does he mean? It doesn't do us a lot of good just to figure out what the scripture doesn't say. We need to figure out what it does say, right? Okay. And the question is, what does it mean? Well, think about Rome. Think about Paul writing these things to the church in Rome. And you have now, coming into the church in Rome, these people for whom eating meat is sin. And it's time to have your Sunday afternoon potluck. What are you going to do? You know what I think Paul would have said? You don't serve me. Why? Well, just picture it. Picture it right here in our sanctuary. Okay, you've got you've got a significant number of people within the church who have a serious objection to eating meat. They believe it would be sin to do. And so you you have your your fellowship hall here, all uh, the gym, all full of tables, and everybody's coming in to eat. And there's a spread of food out there for people to eat. And there's all kinds of stuff to eat, and there's a bunch of uh, uh, brisket and you know and hot dogs and all that stuff laid out, of course, because most of us we're free to eat that stuff. But there are some in our midst, and we know this, who think that's wrong, and so they come to our love feast, they come to our potluck, to our agape meal. 
And they come in and they don't want to take that meat because they think it's wrong, but they look around at everybody else. Everybody else is eating it. Yeah, and I'll look kind of funny if I don't. And and they may be inclined to take some meat. And what happens when they do? The conscience is seared. And we have destroyed our brother. So, what I think Paul is warning us about here is I think he's warning us not to flaunt our liberty. We don't flaunt our freedoms. But we live in a sensitivity, in a discreetness with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we interact with them, as we fellowship with them, if we are aware that, that they have a problem in an area, we don't flaunt our liberty. We take use of our liberty to not do that thing. So if we had a significant number of people who had scruples in the area of eating meat, I would suggest in our potlucks we probably shouldn't serve meat. Now, we might run home after potluck and grab a hamburger, you know. But in that context, we don't want to do something that would encourage that person to do something that would hurt that conscience of theirs. Okay? So, what that means is we're going to have to think about Romans 14. It's not just some black and white formula. Okay? You never do this. It's not that. But rather, it's that I have to walk in discretion and love on a daily basis as I'm interacting with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And being very sensitive in areas of non-essentials that if somebody thinks something's really important and that to do it is sin, I need to be careful not to do anything that would encourage them to do something that's wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that I could never exercise my liberty with somebody who feels otherwise. Because maybe they're really strong in that. Maybe Maybe they could come into a potluck full of brisket and just walk right by it. And I know that about them. I know they faced this issue before. They're determined. They're convinced. And it's not an issue to them to be around other people who are doing it. Then I wouldn't have any problem eating meat in front of them because I would know that even though they disagree with me, it's not a temptation to them. Yeah? This is a little more complicated than that. Say you have your vegetable meal here and then you go to Brown and get your hamburger and you're eating it walking out and they come in to pick up a gallon of milk and they see you eating the hamburger. First, you're looking like a different thing. It is complicated. And Paul raises that very issue in 1 Corinthians 8. Because he says, because he says, well, what if you're there at the, at the uh, temple with the idols? You know, and you know there are no such thing as idols, and you're eating meat, sacrifice the idols, and somebody walks by. And he uses that very example in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he's, so, so, that's why I say, 
chapter 14 is not a no-brainer. It's something we have to think about on a daily basis. We have to think about the context we live in, the society we live in, the Christians we fellowship. These are all things that we have to factor in when we make that choice or when we make that decision. Yeah. Do you have any other thought on that? What do you think you should do? Put you on the spot, didn't it? <laughs> It's very complicated. It's not yes. And in reality, isn't that the nature of love? Love is sometimes something that really takes a lot of thought, doesn't it? It's something that takes a lot of thought. And, and, and that's what I want us to do with Romans 14. I don't want us to just take Romans 14 and go, okay, well, that, what that means is I never do anything that somebody else is uncomfortable with. Because if that is the case, as we said, there's a whole list of things we can't do. And you ladies better hurry home and change clothes before worship service this afternoon, this morning, okay? Uh, so, so I think the principle is this that Paul is communicating. You don't flaunt your freedom. You exercise it discreetly with your brother or your sister in mind and where they are. As I said, you may know somebody who has, who has an objection to something you do, but it's not a temptation to them. They've settled the issue. They've made their commitment. They know their conviction. Paul deals with that, incidentally, at the end of the chapter. They're settled in their mind. It's, they're not going to give in. Then I would have no problem exercising my liberty with someone like that. But if it's somebody who's who's not strong, who may give in just because they see me doing it, and they may engage in it, then I want to be pretty discerning. Pardon? Well, it would help if we really got to know one another in the fellowship of Christ, wouldn't it? It would help if we did more than just come to church and say hi to one another as we pass down the hallway. It would help if we got to know one another. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually, that's a great point. I think we can go out of our way to encourage those who are, quote, weak in conscience to hold firm to that conscience. I think we ought to teach that. I think we ought to encourage that in our individual walks. Like Paul says there at verse 1, when he first starts his off, he says, you don't receive somebody for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinion. And so I think that's one thing we can do with the weak. We can say, we can say listen, you know, I know you don't have liberty in this area, and I want you to be diligent to guard that. Even though I feel I have liberty, I don't want you to do anything that you think is wrong. And I think we can do those kind of things like you just mentioned. That's good. Well, we're out of time. And obviously, this is an area you have to think about. Okay? We'll go on next week.